The reading today comes from Isaiah chapter 65 and starting at verse 17. And we had a teaser of the content of this in the kids' church uh, section earlier. And um, this just gives us a great encouragement about what to look forward to with a new heaven and a new earth and a place without tears and death and a good thing to think about today. So let's um, start with uh, Isaiah 65, um, starting at verse 17. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Thank you, Jody. Folks, uh, welcome along. Uh, Youth Church, that's your cue if you'd like to head out for your program. Um, for all those who are visiting, let me add my welcome to Rob's. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, it's lovely to have you along. In fact, it is lovely to be able to meet together in person, isn't it? It's something that... Um, it's terrible when you can't, and it's a real joy when you can. And I wanted to take the opportunity, I suppose, at the first instance when we're back meeting uh, in person to, to express both, well, the excitement and the terror of the prospects of, of taking up the senior pastor role here at WEC in December. Um, it is truly humbling. Both Tina and I have been talking and praying about it now for a while. Um, but it's truly humbling to have the support and encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ here at WEC. And we really are excited and extremely privileged uh, to be continuing to be part of what God is doing, has been doing, will do in the future alongside you all here at WEC. Um, but it is a terrifying thought. I'm sure I'm not the only one feeling that. Um, I mean, personally, the thought of sort of stepping into the future without Pete and Sarah is for us, as I'm sure for many of you guys, um, it's not just personally sad. Um, it's, I mean, it is, it's, it's, a, it's a, a hole in how church works, but a hole relationally. I think a lot of us are going to feel that, such as being the influence of their friendship. And so there's going to be lots more to, to speak about this down the track. Still a um, congregational vote to get through in a couple of weeks, isn't there? You know? <laughs> um, before everything's made official, but I did want to just acknowledge that. And, and at the same time as the mix of emotions with that, there's also this other stuff that's going on, you know, the COVID vaccine, passports, confusion. There's so much... So much that's in the air, in the ether at the minute, that can be so destabilising and so confusing. I wanted to get the, have this the opportunity again to commit it to prayer, and especially now that we might set those things aside as we're, and ask God to shift our attention and give our full focus to, um, to his word to us through Isaiah. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. 
Uh, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are present with us always. We ask now that you would quieten our hearts and our minds amidst all the emotion, uh, despite so much confusion, even against uh, the personal troubling circumstances that we face, and that now you would focus our attention on your word, and that through it, by your spirit, you would continue to firm the foundation of the confidence and the contentment that we can enjoy through Christ alone. We ask you to do it for our good and your glory. Amen. Well, a few years back when I was in college, a couple of guys I was living with on one of the college communities, they decided to train to compete in their first marathon together. Um, they took their time. They were smart about it. They, they uh, planned ahead. They stuck to strict training regimes, which saw them work on things like their speed one week, their stamina the next, the next week. They were gradually lengthening out both time and distance in their training runs until they were all confident they could make the distance on said day. They even had, actually, the forethought to taper off their training towards the end, just so that they had the extra energy, primed, ready, eager to go when the big day arrived. I remember talking to one of the guys after his run. He told me how it went. He said, I started well. Felt good, fresh, no dramas. I, in fact, he said, I continued through the middle stages according to plan, felt fit, felt comfortable, felt in control until I got to about the 40K mark where he said then he started to struggle. Though mentally still wanting to battle on, his body was now fighting against him with every step. And he said that battle continued for the next two kilometers until finally, he said, I saw the finish line just a few hundred meters in the distance. What effect do you think that the, that the side of the finish line had on him at that point? I mean, after more than four and a half hours of running, battling fatigue, legs feeling like jelly, just the mere sight of the finish line gave strength to his tired legs, oxygen to his burning lungs, and that extra resolve for his now fraying sanity. And so he pinned his hairs back and he headed for home. But that's not the end of the story. <laughs> you see, in a cruel twist of fate, the finish line that he saw wasn't quite the finish line. Unbeknownst to Josh at this point, but not beyond his ability to know, he hadn't checked the course map very carefully. The marathon course actually took competitors past the finish line on one side of a physical barrier, only to do another 500-meter loop before they come back on the right side of the finish line to cross the barrier, to cross the, to, the tape. Now, can you imagine that moment? What effect would that have? Those wrong expectations about where the finish line was. I'll tell you what it did for Josh, it brought him undone. He stopped, parallel with the finish line, albeit on the wrong side of the barrier, staring in disbelief at the goal that was now so close and yet so far away. Now I start this way today because we're in this, this, uh, this section of Isaiah 60 to 66. And I want you to sense, I want you to feel what seems like a very similar scenario for Judah and Jerusalem at this point in Isaiah's ministry, in fact, that we find ourselves in as we come to the close of the book of Isaiah. For us, it's been a 10-week trek up Mount Isaiah. For Judah and Jerusalem, it was more like a 50-year marathon trek through Isaiah's prophetic ministry. And though in one sense that the summit's in sight, we're gradually getting there, yet in another real sense for both us and for Judah, it might feel like the finish line isn't quite where you expected it to be. There's a bit of a summit surprise waiting. And, and I want to underline at this point, though, it is genuinely good news, but at the same time it can feel like a real gut-wrenching moment, almost like you've reached the peak of the mountain only to find yourself in the shadow of an even taller peak. 
And so what I want to do as we finish off Isaiah today, what I want to show you is how this summit surprise on Mount Isaiah, how does it play out for both Judah then and for us now? And so have that part of Isaiah open for you. The first thing I want you to see is that we really are coming to the summit of Mount Isaiah. We really are reaching a peak. And I think we can be sure of this through the text as Isaiah brings his ministry almost back full circle, reminding his hearers in this moment where they stand now into relation to where they started. Have a look what I mean. Have a look at Isaiah 60. Read it with me. 60 verse 1 says this, Arise and shine, for your light has come and the glory of Yahweh rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but Yahweh rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. This is how Isaiah 60 starts. And I hope that this is actually pinging off in your memory something of what we heard a little while back. Can you, can you hear the links between earlier Isaiah? Do you recognize those repeated themes of God's light dawning through the darkness, of God's glory being revealed and acting as a beacon to nations? Come to him. If you don't, well, have a look at the screen. Isaiah 2, if you can remember that for long back. Isaiah 2, verse 2. This is how he started. He said, in the last days... The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord to the temple of the Lord, of ja- the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You see, this is what Isaiah is doing here. This was the view of the summit. It was the vision of hope as Isaiah began his ministry right back at the start. It was always focused on this day. It was always focused on what God would do in Judah and in Jerusalem, but not just for their own sake, but for the sake of the nations. We heard it back in week two. Do you remember Pete's analogy? It was like we were just left base camp and Pete said, we're looking up at the telescope at the summit. That's where we're headed. That's where they are. God always intending to establish his people like a temple on the highest mountain and he's going to do this as a clarion call, as a witness to all nations that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God of all nations. That his ways are right, that his ways are truth, that his ways are light-giving and life-giving and therefore the invitation to come to Yahweh, it's spectacular, it's obvious, it's a no-brainer, come. And it is so important that we remember this as we reach Isaiah 60. He's signaling this for his hearers to see this repeated theme of light and life and the glory of God revealed out of darkness, helping them to realize that it was the same view from the back at chapter 2. But he's not just looking back, he's looking forward too. You see, what else does he do? Have a look. I'm skipping along here because we've got a big section. But have a look at Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Because here, we conti- as we continue, as Isaiah continues, we read the voice of the servant again. That servant that we heard in those middle chapters through 40, 53. We hear that voice, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah is not just looking back, he's looking forward. 
And this is seriously necessary, comforting good news. And it really does seem like a high point that they've been waiting for. I mean, just think about this practically for a moment. At this particular point in history for the people that Isaiah is speaking to, many towns in Judah at this point had already been conquered by the Assyrians. Major battles had been fought, lost in Judah. Major towns captured. If you go to Isaiah 36, 1, we even hear about how many towns fell to the Assyrian conquest. Jerusalem itself has remained standing, but many of their countrymen, indeed, they were captives of foreign nations. There were many with broken hearts, many struggling with poverty, many who hadn't heard good news in decades. So to hear this servant coming to proclaim good news, freedom for the kids, that's huge. So the one who would usher in the the heights of this liberty and this freedom from the oppression, that's what they so decided. That's what they so desperately needed. But you see, there's a problem here, isn't there? Straight away, you recognize the problem. It feels like a bit of a false summit, doesn't it? It can look like a double finish line. Because as nice and as necessary as the promises of Isaiah 61 are for the people whom he's speaking to, there's still the pleasant problem of the pain and the difficulty, the oppression, the confusion to deal with in their immediate state and in their near future. Babylon is still coming. We heard it in verse uh, in, uh, in chapter 39, Isaiah, from the mouth of God, Babylon will come to Jerusalem. Verse 39, uh, 39 verse 6, they will plunder the city. Chapter 39, verse 7, the people of Jerusalem will find themselves exiled, forced into service of foreign kings. You can put a ring around it. So what good is it to speak of these future good times? How is it helpful to Isaiah's generation of hearers who, practically speaking, were only destined for the oppression and the hardship, not the freedom and the liberty? Do you feel the weight of how that must feel like? What good is it to tell them about the future joys that they will not personally experience when all they've told them that they're going to experience is horror and strife? Whoopee-doo, Isaiah. Thanks a bunch. I mean, I think that it's possible that the people in Isaiah's day would have heard it like this. What are you doing, Isaiah? Are you just mocking us now? Are you just taking the mick? Are you just rubbing salt into the wound? Not at all. No, no, what he's doing here, what Isaiah is doing very deliberately, carefully and caringly is he's preparing people in advance. He is giving them a so-called toolkit to stave off the fatigue, to strengthen the weary legs, to encourage the fraying confidences, because although the reality of strife and hardship, even death, will prevent his generation from experiencing the physical, tangible benefits of liberty and freedom from oppression, it doesn't cut them off from this hope entirely now do you get that just because they are not going to experience this presently in their future uh, tangibly physically it does not cut off the hope eternally no you see this is the summit surprise this is the expanded vision of the hope that judah needs to hear and hold on to That despite what happens in the immediate temporal context, what Isaiah is looking forward to, what he's trying to get their heads up to see, is not the physical horizon that they might miss out on, but the eternal horizon, an everlasting summit experience that they need not miss out on, that they must keep their eyes focused on. 
You see, what I find interesting as I've read through Isaiah is not just how much, in a minute we'll see how he, he even points back to creation in Genesis, but he's pointing forward to the new creation as well. It feels like Isaiah is such a middle point. Um, I, I haven't gone into it at length here, despite the, the fact I'd like to, but read Revelation 20 and 21 and tell me you can't hear Isaiah there. Isaiah is not just looking backwards, he's looking forward. He's trying to lift their eyes to this future event. And in fact, this is where Isaiah becomes so pertinent and presently applicable for us still today. Because we've got to be real with this. We're not in Isaiah's day. We're not his generation of people. We're not currently under threat from Assyria or looking down at the barrel of exile into, into Babylon. But that does not mean that the present difficulties or the present problems or the present hardships and heartaches that causes doubts and confusion about God and what he's doing, that doesn't exclude us from those. I mean, you realise that, don't you? Do you, re- do you realise that tension personally? Do the circumstances of life sometimes cause you to question, even doubt God's goodness or his promises? And even if your life is hunky-dory, you go, I've got nothing to complain about, even at a, at a larger scale. I mean, just think about what we've been talking with the whole COVID stuff. Even at that level, what's happening in the world with COVID and corruption and coercion? I mean, let's be honest, if I wanted to write a list of, of things that could confuse and destabilize us, I could fill a warehouse with that list. Do these circumstances cause you to wobble in your faith? If you're not, that you're either a better person than me or that you're in denial. Both are live options at this point. But if you are like me and you stop and you wonder and you can't help but in the darkness go, where is God? What is he doing? Are his promises legit? Are they even worth it? If that is you, then hear again the expanded vision of Isaiah which looks past Judah's present circumstances, which even looks past our present day circumstances and focuses on an even taller peak on a different mountain that is both the fulfillment and the expansion of Mount Isaiah. Let me show what I mean, Isaiah 65, 17. God's speaking through Isaiah and here he focuses on this greater summit, this promise, and get this, it's not just... It's a brand new reality. Read it with me. Isaiah 65, 17 says this. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Now, do you hear, the, again, the enormity of that claim, of that promise? Do you understand the greater future reality beyond and even in spite of whatever may happen in the physical circumstances of your existence? God is promising a brand new reality. It's a new heavens and a new earth that's being promised. In fact, this is where I think it's not by accident that Isaiah seems to be using similar language to Genesis 1.1 in the very, very opening. Have a look at it. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That is, the heavens, not to think about heaven as the place that you're going afterwards, the heavens, the stars, the space that occupy the expanse above, God created that and he created the earth. And though in Genesis 3, God's creation is significantly marred by sin, which causes a spectacular relational fall, here in Isaiah 65 is the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. That's magnificent. 
Because it means God's plan is not just to panel beat and repaint the old busted creation. No, he's going to replace it new for old. And if you're not yet excited about that prospect, then just look at the new improved features, if you like, of God's new creation. Look at it there in 65 verse 20. In it, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the youth will die at a hundred years, and the one who misses out in a hundred years will be cursed. There's a change up in the, in the idea of death. In fact, back in Isaiah 25, 8, this one will come on the screen, he actually gives us a little bit more of that picture as well. He says, God will destroy death forever. The Lord, God, will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, can you imagine? I, actually, I can't imagine this reality, but you need to start to try. And I'll tell you why it's so important and why it's so personally applicable is that every single person in this room presently has either been affected or will be affected by the death of loved ones. Either has been or will be in your sphere of relationships, will, will undergo some level of the heartache of seeing or hearing of an infant dying. I cannot imagine that as a parent. Will see or hear or experience the tragedy of a youth dying or of a loved one in what we think is their prime cut down. And yet Isaiah here is looking forward to a future, God's future, where death is no longer relevant. It's no longer an issue. There are no graveyards. There are no undertakers. There's no need to write sympathy cards because death is dead. That's the reality that he's trying to get them to look forward to. But that's not all. Have a look at verse 65, sorry, 65 verse 21. It says their people will build houses and live in them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. My chosen ones, said God, my chosen ones will long enjoy the fruits of their hands. Now this is beyond just the idea of physically building and planting here. What he's talking about here is injustice done away with too. Death is dead. Injustice is no more. No such thing as being swindled or robbed in the new creation. No such occasion where you're either bullied or coerced or find yourself on the wrong end of preferential treatment. Never an instance where someone takes credit for the work you've done. That means no police, no lawyers, no court systems, no jails. Imagine that again. Can you imagine that? But before you answer, and at the risk of sounding like a TV infomercial, but wait, there's more. Verse 25, read with me. And this illustration really does get to the heart of the enormity of the change in nature between this age and the age to come, between creation as we know it now and the new creation that God is bringing in. Look at it in verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, but the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, do you hear how dramatic the difference is in this new creation, in this new reality that God is promising, that God is ushering in? It's an, ont an ontological change. It is a change in the very nature of things as we know it. It's got less to do with the diet of a lion and more to do with the change in nature. That's that the, the enmity removed. 
hostility, conflict, tension done away with. A lion and a lamb at peace? That's nuts. I can't imagine it. Sibling rivalry abandoned? I'd like to see that. (laughs) Selfish ambition, unknown, personal vendettas, a foreign concept. And notice again, Isaiah's reference almost back to Genesis again. The serpent's fate is sealed. His influence removed. Dust will be his diet because sin has been abolished forever. Now get what this means. It means that for those who belong to God's new creation, you will neither be the victim of nor the perpetrator of evil anymore. Neither the victim of nor the perpetrator of your sinful stupidity anymore. No more struggle with temptation. No more delighting in wrongdoing in those small temporary moments, therefore, and then racked by the guilt that follows. Because what's happened has been a change at the very core, a fundamental change in nature in line with God's intentions. Friends, do you not long for that? Do you not want that? Aren't you sick of the struggle with sin? I'm down with it. I want to be done with it, and yet I'm still not done with it. Why? This, this is what freedom looks like, folks. This is what genuine freedom looks like. It's what genuine liberation looks like. It's not free to do what I want. It's freedom from my foolish, sinful inclinations. Freedom from those to instead pursue and enjoy and worship God forever, as he deserves. That's the hope of the glory of God in the new creation and the invitation to be with him. Friends, this is what Isaiah is telling his people. This is what he's reminding us of now because this is the end game we need to keep in mind, in sight. This is the largest summit of the greater mountain, God's holy mountain, that we need to keep our eyes fixed on as we endure whatever other circumstances might come our way in this existence, good, bad or indifferent. So there's no promises about those things, but there's a promise about the end game. And as I said, it's, it's a time thing now. We, we push that forward in the New Testament. And in fact, we'll see this again very clearly in just two weeks' time. We're about to start a series back in Luke. We're going to come to Luke 4 and we're going to see that Jesus is this higher mountain peak. Jesus is the mountain peak, the holy mountain, the temple that just puts everything else in its shadow. He is the servant Isaiah was preempting. It's actually on him that we need to keep our eyes fixed. In fact, just let me take you to Hebrews 12.2 really quickly. Hebrews 12.2, it says, Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Why? Because it's Jesus who knows what it's like to struggle and suffer in the physical realm. And yet, verse 2, For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, And what is the writer of the Hebrews telling us to do with that? Verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Friends, this is the big implication for us as we summit Mount Isaiah. Today, seeing the future of the glory promised and secured by King Jesus. The glory of the promise which far outweighs any possible present hardship, which exceeds any possible future expectations. And that seeing that and knowing that and trusting that, we would press into him and hang on to the end, even as we thank him that it's actually him hanging on to us. Christian brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, don't be like my mate Josh, standing at the finish line, 
parallel behind the barrier, 400 metres beyond the end. No, no, don't be bemoaning the fact that it's not where you expected. No, no, listen to Isaiah and look to Jesus and have your expectations shaped rightly and your confidence, confidence rightly confirmed in the one who is bringing and who has secured a new reality for all who are in him. And if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, then it's time to take seriously the invitation of Jesus, who promises rest for the weary, who isn't asking you to, to summit his mountain, who in fact guarantees that those who put their trust in him have already ascended. You see, the truth is this, folks. The finish line is in sight. In Christ, the victory is guaranteed. And the glory promised is spectacular and unfading. Therefore, do not give up. Do not give in, but continue, friends, to put our trust in him. I'm going to pray as we wrap up before we actually um, do something else that's really exciting and that's to share the Lord's Supper. But pray with me now, would you? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we get to that point in Isaiah now where we, we come to the, the summit and we see that it's actually a mere shadow of, uh, of the future reality that you have promised and secured in Christ. We thank you that it is through Isaiah that we see Jesus with sharper clarity and sharper focus and sharper vision. And we pray that by putting our trust in him, Father, that you would carry us to that, the heights of the glory that you have promised for those who are yours. Lord, continue to um, give us confidence amongst the confusion and clarity amongst all the clouds that we might actually really genuinely seek to honour you as we struggle here now because of the weight of the glory that, um, uh, that we, we see in the future in Jesus. We ask it for your glory and for our good. Amen.